there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. He had really piercing eyes. Piercing eyes. His eyes were like black. Kind of like Ted Bundy. Those kind of eyes. Um, but was I scared of him? Hell no. Not a bit. But I should have been. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. I'm really upset that we haven't done or started our social distancing recording situation, you guys. This is still hurting me. Maybe next week. Next week should be good. This is reliant on Billy, really. We yes. all have well, next week should be good. Place. We all have a yeah. place that's big enough, and I have disinfectant wipes, and... <laughs> A shield visor that I can wear. You know what? Maybe that's an extra precaution that we could take is wearing a shield visor as we we record. Because we can't use a mask. Well, me and Jack have been seeing each other on a socially distant level outside only. And I am swear by this tinted shield visor that I wear. And I won't take it off. So I will wear that. Well, you also, you wear it while we have a conversation, but it's so tinted that I can't see your face at all. So I don't know what expression you're making. If you're looking at me at all, I can barely hear you. So you're like cosplaying Darth Vader. That's how I sleep. I'm usually asleep when people talk to me. It's fine. Yeah, it is a a very Darth Vader vibes. Um, Daft Punk. Or Daft Punk. Or Daft Punk. Um, Billy, what day is it today? There's a lot of good days today. National Creative Ice Cream Flavor Day. What is your favorite creative ice cream flavor? That is the question. I will start. Humphrey Slocum makes a cornflakes and whiskey. <laughs> cornflakes and whiskey. It's excellent. Um, of course, you know this really obscure thing. <laughs> I My creative ice cream flavor uh, situation that I have enjoyed in the past, it's not my favorite, but Salt and Straw does this, or they did this Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, series. It was very weird. Like they had a mashed potatoes flavor. They had a, there was a turkey flavor where they had caramelized turkey pieces in the ice cream and it was fucking delicious. But um, Billy, I'm actually kind of pissed that you didn't mention that today is national chicken wing day. That was going to be my next one. <laughs> Look at her. 
Look at oh, Alexis's face. If you face. could see Alexis's face. You are a cruel man. Listen to me. You I know said chicken I had wings two. is my favorite food. You know that is my favorite food in the whole world. And you chose ice cream day first? I was waiting for I didn't want to go. We wouldn't be able to talk about the ice cream if I went with chicken wings first. So we that, led up you know, to the I, chicken wings. You're right. Because the ice cream would have been kind of a downfall. So yeah, I, exactly. I like that build up to the chicken wings. Um, all right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Army brats, you've heard the term, children with one or both parents serving full-time in the military. The age of the phenomenon has meant military brats have also been described by a number of researchers as one of America's oldest and yet least well-known and largely invisible subcultures. The military brat lifestyle typically involves moving to a new state or to a new country many, many times over while growing up. Other shaping forces, or rather implications of this lifestyle, include a culture of resilience and adaptivity, constant loss of friendship ties, parents that are literally and figuratively militant in their parenting style, and of course, never ever having a hometown or roots anywhere. It can be extremely difficult to track military brats down or find out where they've lived, where they've been, where they ended up, what they ended up doing. And for this reason, the military brat lifestyle really is the perfect foundation for someone who really, really doesn't want to be found. So today's case takes us back to June 8th of 1963, and a lot was happening this week. The song topping the charts was It's My Party by Leslie Gore, and the movie playing in theaters was Cleopatra starring Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Also, Johnny Depp was born, and the Rolling Stones' first single, Come On, was released in the UK. The president of the U.S., JFK, signed the Equal Pay Act of 1963 into law, and he also suspended nuclear testing to work towards a nuclear test ban treaty. The setting for today's case is a city in Germany called Bad Kratzna, also known as BK. Since its earliest recorded history, BK has had a legacy of military influence. It was badly damaged by a number of air raids during the last months of World War II, and following the war, first French and that American forces have been continually based in the city. The base in BK was home to thousands of military men, women, and their children. And one of those army brats who was spending her high school years on the base was our first degree, Barbara. My family was stationed in Italy at one time, Germany, and Japan, and Alaska, back when it might as well not have been a state. And you learn, when you move like every year to two years, you have to get to know people fast. Because you know... I could come home tomorrow and my dad says, well, guess what? We're being transferred to Timbuktu. So when I got to Germany, you, you've only, I think we only had 400 people in the high school. And that was 7th grade and 8th grade plus high schools. We went back to Germany. There were four of us in the family. 
Um, my dad asked to be stationed in Bad Kreuznach, and that's a beautiful town on the Nahi River, not too far from Frankfurt. Um, and you know, in the military back then, you moved almost every year. It was it was hard. It was hard. So we got there when I was in eighth grade. Everybody knows everybody's business. All the kids knew all the kids. My dad uh, was in World War II. The war had ended. My dad was over there near the end of the war. So yeah, I mean, everybody knew what everybody else was doing. Nobody had telephones though. Germany didn't have phones back then. Only a few people had a telephone that they could really use. Because uh, this was 63. You know, the war had only been over for what, 15 years or so? So Barbara had a very tight group of girlfriends on the base, and one of these friends was named Margaret Williams. Margaret was the 15-year-old daughter of Lieutenant Colonel Robert Williams of Clarksville, Tennessee, and he was also an Army chaplain and Protestant minister. I met Margaret. I probably met her in eighth grade, but I didn't become friends with her till ninth grade. Uh, she was quiet, shy, naive. Um, she just, she had no graces about her as far as dealing with people. And my heart always went out to that student that didn't fit in or, you know, I would get to know him because I was a big mouth. I knew everybody. Um, and I just befriended her. She was as sweet as she could be. The children of the soldiers stationed at the base attended the BK American High School. When, when school started freshman year, Mark was in all my classes. If you were a freshman, everybody had the same classes together, all the same teachers. We would hang together and eat lunch. We had a building that was turned into a club for kids. It was open every day. So that's where you went to hang out if you weren't at home. That's where we hung out. There was a snack bar there. You could actually get American hamburgers because you didn't get, they had no um, McDonald's back then. They had no Kentucky Fried Chicken, no American food at all, except for the base cafeteria or the team club. So that was our hangout. And even though Barbara, Margaret, and all of the other kids were living in Germany on a base, they were still engaging in those quintessential high school experiences. And this included high school dances. And these were all held at the base's quote unquote teen club. And one of these dances was held on June 8th of 1963. And this was a Saturday night. And when I tell you this story, you're going to say, Barb, you're making this up just for the podcast. No, I'm not. You can talk to my sister, my sister-in-law. You can talk to Lynn Schneider. There's a group of us that we still know each other. But this, this is what, this is part of what I think kept this in my mind for all these years. So Margaret is very plain. She has curly hair, but she doesn't fix it. She doesn't wear makeup, but I didn't either. I mean, we were 15, but she was very plain. She wouldn't wear any clothing that was the least bit suggestive. And I think that's because her dad was a minister and probably very picky. Um, she was plain Jane. And because she was so quiet and so timid, you could be in a room with 30 people and nobody even noticed her. And I just, you know, that's kind of sad. Um, and I can't tell you why this particular dance, we decided to do this, but Kathy Clark was one of my best friends. Loretta Harlow was one of my best friends who ended up marrying my brother. She's now my sister-in-law. And I decided that we were going to fix Margaret up for the dance. It, they said it was a church dance. No, it wasn't. It was the end of the school year dance at the teen club. There was one every year. There was a dance every, I, I swear, at least once a month there was a dance. So we went to Kathy's house because Kathy's family had a lot of money, personal money, not military money. 
Kathy had the best clothes. Kathy wore tons of makeup, too much. So we go together to her house, and we went through Kathy's closet and picked out a cream, sort of light, woolish cream skirt that sort of flared out from the hips, and a creamy white, it felt like cashmere, a sweater that fit Margaret tighter than anything she had ever worn because she had big boobs. I mean, for a girl who's 15, she was built. And so uh, Kathy did her makeup. We did her hair. We spent the whole afternoon together. And Margaret felt like a million dollars. She was so proud. She, she held her head up like she never did at school when, when I saw her when she left. She was so excited. Now, I think now that I look back on it, we did that because her dad would never have allowed that. So we knew we get her to Kathy's, fix her up. She can go to the dance. Her parents will never know. So even though Barbara got ready with her friends, she didn't actually go with them to the dance. My dad was an army colonel, and sometimes he was just a badass. And he decided, you don't need to go. You go to too many things, and I just want you home. So I went home. I didn't go to the dance. When they got there, they kind of split up. Again, everybody knew everybody else. So the dance ended. Kathy Clark went home with a bunch of friends. Lynn Schneider went with her friends to go party somewhere. And Loretta went with her friends. All three of them saw Margaret as she walked out of the teen club. And the place was small, so she probably lived, you know, might have been a 10-minute walk. And Lynn and her group and Loretta and her group were passing by and said, hey, do you want us to walk? You want to walk with us? We're going in your direction. We'll walk you home. And she said no to both of them. Meanwhile, Barbara is home. She stays home on the Saturday night, the night that they are having the end of year dance. But she is woken up very, very early to a very confusing, perplexing, and kind of unnerving situation. We lived off base in a German house. And the two police showed up at our German house and wanted to talk to me. I wish I could tell you exactly what time the MPs came. MPs, military police. My memory is that I was in PJs and my dad came upstairs and brought me downstairs. So I'm thinking very early morning, very early morning, like six in the morning. So I sit down with them and I'm like, what the hell? And they wouldn't tell me exactly what happened. They just kept asking, where was I yesterday? What did I do? Who did I hang out with? So I gave them what information I could and then they left. And, of course, my dad and mom were sitting there, and I said, what do you think is going on? Well, since we didn't have a phone, there was no way to find out. Barbara and her family were left in the dark about the strange home visit made by the military police officers until later that day. My mother took us to church later in the day, and our Catholic priest brought it up at the sermon. And that's when I found out it was Margaret. Margaret Williams had been strangled and sexually assaulted. Her body was found on a baseball field adjacent to the teen club where the dance had been held the previous night. Tell you, I can't tell you what I felt back then. You know, I sat down and cried. I know we had a service for her. I think I was in shock, mostly. Here's what happened. After the dance ended, Margaret's parents were up waiting for her to come home. And once midnight had come and gone, her father reported her missing. 
the search for Margaret led to the discovery of her half-dressed, strangled, and battered body. And she was lying in the middle of a baseball diamond behind where the teen club was. And she was callously left there like trash after being sexually assaulted. And she was still wearing parts of the outfit that she had borrowed from her friend when she was getting ready for the dance the day before. When she was murdered, I mean, it affected the entire base hugely. Her dad was the Protestant minister on base. He was the only minister for that whole base. Now, I can't tell you for sure right now exactly what I went through emotionally, but because I remember that time, those few days, so vividly, I know that it affected me. Margaret's murder shocked and horrified everyone at the base. And the first reason, obviously, is because it's an incredible loss when anyone is murdered, let alone a 15-year-old girl. And the second reason is that the person who did it had to be one of them. And everyone on this base was like an extended member of the same family. So who could do this to Margaret and just leave her there? When the military police began investigating, they started with a boy who Margaret was rumored to have a crush on. Shorty Rogers. She at the time was sort of in love with uh, an African-American boy named Shorty Rogers. So while Margaret had a crush on Shorty Rogers and they sort of gravitated towards each other, I want to be clear in that nothing had happened yet. Margaret was a quintessential daughter of a minister. She was a really, really good girl. This is just somebody she meshed with. And the police heard pretty early on that they had this kind of friendship connection. Maybe there's more. Maybe there's an emotional connection. And that's always the first person the police are going to want to speak to. They went to Shorty Rogers' house first because all the the people who had been at the team club knew that she liked Shorty Rogers. His family was due to leave for the States, uh, like in the next week. While it is always a smart idea to start with the romantic interest when you're conducting an investigation, Shorty Rogers had an alibi. Now, while the police had heard Shorty's name, right? Shorty is the one who Margaret likes. They, in the course of their investigation, when they were questioning the students about who Margaret had been seen with that night, who Margaret had been seen with outside the teen club after the dance, who Margaret was in the periphery of, the same name came up over and over again. And that was John Getru. How it turned to John is, who knows, maybe Shorty saw her dancing with John. Maybe somebody who was leaving the teen club saw her finally walk with John. That I don't know. But when they went looking for John, he was walking his family dog like nobody's business. Like it never happened. When they brought John in for questioning, He completely denied having any part in what happened to Margaret. He played dumb. But slowly his story started to shift. He then said that after the dance, he met her outside and they went on a walk. Then his story shifted again. In this new version, he said they eventually had sex, but he certainly didn't kill her. Then he revised his story yet again, admitting to having sex with her, admitting to choking her, but denying killing her. At least he didn't intend to if that's what happened. And word of what had happened to Margaret spread throughout the base, and Barbara was horrified to hear who was responsible. Yeah, Barbara was horrified because like we said, 
This is a very tight-knit situation. You're living overseas on a very small base. Everyone knows everyone. You kind of consider everyone an extended family, and it's how we've referenced this situation prior. John Getru was not a stranger to Barbara. She knew him. She had walked home with him. He had offered to walk her home multiple times. They were very familiar with each other. The horror of realizing that John killed Margaret, these two people she knew pretty well, for a 15-year-old brain is a lot to deal with. I know that I was shocked. I know that I was scared because I knew that John had ripped me home. As a woman, you start thinking, am I missing something? Why wasn't I aware? Why aren't I more careful? You know, why did I just, why did I let him walk me home? John was at the dance. John was a great dancer. I used to love to dance with him. Um, and so my guess is he saw her in a different light because she looked so good. But she was so timid and so shy that I think, like the true ripper that he was, he thought, oh, good, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to get her. Maybe she'll go make out with me. Like we said, Margaret, she was just starting to toy with the idea of liking a boy. Her dad was this staunch, buttoned-up minister at the base. So it's not surprising that if John Getru had come on to her in the dark, in the middle of the night, behind the teen club, she may have been very uncomfortable with that. And all we can assume is that John was waiting for her and found her outside the teen club where they all left. And she was found the next morning behind the teen club, lying on the baseball diamond, strangled with her pantyhose and raped. So I think she was starting to kind of sneak around with Shorty, but I don't think she had any sexual experience at all. So when John said, let's just walk and talk, and then he tried to make out with her, it probably terrified her. And when she panicked, that's when he killed her. I said, the three of us, Loretta, Kathy, and I, when we got together the following week, we said, this is our fault. We made her look gorgeous. She was wearing a tight sweater. John wouldn't have noticed her if it hadn't been for that. You know what I mean? Now, as an adult, I know, I, I mean, I can't really take the blame for that, but still, that was so weird. There are assholes out there, and there are predators, and they. this guy was just, you know, the idea that he wasn't looking at her before because she wasn't, you know, uh, aesthetically pleasing or made up. If it wasn't her, it would have been somebody else. I think it's really interesting when Barbara said that she felt guilty, like she did this nice thing for her friend. It's it's like a quintessential 80s movie montage. You, you know, you make up your friend who's a little bit more timid. You want to make her feel great before a dance. And then suddenly what happened happened. And for them to feel guilty, I mean, I understand that. But it's not valid and it's not her fault obviously but we hear 
shit like this all the time. Right. So I think there's two prongs to this. One is what you're talking about where it's like, it's like the 80s movie. It literally reminds me of She's All That, right? Where it's like the dorky girl that's getting a makeover and then all all the guys like She's her. All That is spot on. Like that 90s, like coming down the staircase in the red dress scene. Yeah. And it, and it kind of goes back to, you know, the what was she wearing kind of conversation and it's a load of fucking bullshit at the end of the day. Like it doesn't matter how cute she looked that night or whatever i don't think that you know when it comes to her guilt in that situation you know that of course you're gonna feel that because you have this personal connection with the person but i don't think you know as an outsider that um there is there should be any guilt kind of tied to that well and at the end of the day too i think that that thought is almost like brings us back to the this like misogynistic way of thinking where it's like you can't be beautiful you can't be done up you can't wear a pretty dress you can't do this or else you're, you're asking be vulnerable for it. to something like this happening to you where it's that is not the case whatsoever and that in itself is is a fucked up ass backwards way of thinking you're telling women all your focus should be on being as pretty as you can but don't be too pretty because otherwise yep. it's justified if someone fucking rapes and kills you. Absolutely. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways, and with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences, and before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on the realreal.com. 
The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. In 1963, John Arthur Getru was 18 years old. He was born in 1944, and he and his family were natives of Newark, Ohio. Germany wasn't the only place he'd lived with his family. He'd also spent time on bases in Japan, Hawaii, and North Carolina. His family had come to Germany. They were stationed at BK. And when he was uh, at school, he'd get kicked out of class all the time. He had anger management issues big time. I knew that. Everybody knew that. Um, but I was friendly to him. I was a cheerleader. He was on the football team. Um, I would, again, I said he danced great. I would dance with him whenever we were at the team club. And if it was night and I lived off base, about a 30-minute walk, he'd walk me home. Heck, he walked me home all the time. Now, I never liked him. Uh, in fact, if you ask different people about John, they, I mean, he got in trouble a lot at school was a darker character and people would say oh he's kind of creepy uh again i kind of felt for him he had come to he came to germany a year late and we through the rumor mill we heard that he had been either at juvie or in some treatment center in ohio his father then was stationed in germany and he came when his time was up whatever it was do i have proof of that no but that's that's the rumor that went around John was ultimately charged with rape and murder, but under German law, he would be tried in juvenile court. During the trial, the defense argued that John was drunk when he killed Margaret. John took the stand, and according to a 1964 Newark Advocate article, he said, quote, I raped her, but it did not occur to me that I could have killed her. I just wanted to knock her out. During the trial, John disparaged Margaret's character and claimed that she was throwing herself at him suggesting that it was her fault that she ended up dead. And the defense blamed heavy petting for, quote, knocking Getru loose from his senses. They also claimed that the sex was consensual, but there was zero evidence of a romantic relationship between Margaret and John. When he was in German court, he blamed Margaret. He said she came on to him. And I knew her, and I knew that was a lie. And once... Once he was taken away to the German courts, it was never brought up. My dad never mentioned it. It was never mentioned again. Again, that's what the military does. So weird. And I, I wish I could say, uh, here's the thing, though. There's a lot of things. I have a really bad memory when it comes to my youth, mostly because we moved so much. It's hard to, it's hard to put things in the right boxes in your head. But I remember the day we fixed her up like it was yesterday. I remember the next day like it was yesterday, and I've never, ever, ever forgotten about it. And just about once a decade, when I get together with 
Loretta or my sister and I are talking, his name and her name would come up. Or if somebody would talk about, but they talk about things that happened when you were young, and I'd say, well, listen to this story. And then I'd say, wonder what happened to him. Did he stay in German jail forever? Did he come back to the States? Is he dead? Did John Getru stay in German jail forever? Is he dead? No and no. Although both would have been better alternatives to the reality of what became of John. John was sentenced to 10 years, which was the maximum for the charges he was facing. But since he was an alien in Germany and also considered a juvenile under their law, the court said that John may be released on parole after only two years. And after this pathetic excuse for a sentence was handed down, John addressed the court. He said, quote, I am deeply sorry for her parents, and if I could do something to bring her back, I would. John was released from that German prison after serving only two years. Two years for admitting to raping and then killing a 15-year-old girl. And there's no denying that there are problems with how the military handles not only murder, but sexual assault. And how Margaret's murder was handled is perhaps not that different than how it would be handled today. Just look at the numbers. The Department of Defense doesn't keep any kind of military sex offender registry that could potentially alert soldiers and commanders, let alone law enforcement, to the presence of military sexual predators. And this is fucking bananas. Why wouldn't they keep track of this? What could the excuse possibly be? Well, in 2015, the Department of Defense amended their protocols and they started submitting names of convicted offenders to the National Sex Offender Registry and the National Sex Offender Public Website. But very few names are making their way on this list. And according to a 2019 New York Times article, reported the following. According to the latest figures, there were about 6,000 unrestricted reports of sexual assault in the military in 2019. But only about 300 cases had been prosecuted. And keep in mind that it's likely that only 50% of sexual assaults are reported in the military. And the main reason people give for the reason why they don't report them is retribution. One thing I did see is that there's an estimated that 25% of women in the military are sexually assaulted. I read one in in 16. One in 16. And I just subscribed to the New York Times and paid to get past their paywall while researching for this. But- they were saying one in 16 because the military yeah. is only 20% women essentially, but makes up like 90% of the sexual assaults, of course. So the fact that there are so few women and the percentages are so high, that's what they can deduce based on the data. And they pull a hundred thousand um, military soldiers, but yeah, no, it's a huge problem. And clearly it, it was a problem in 1963. It's a problem now. So obviously in the military, there is this culture that thrives on silence. And it's a culture that's skilled at sweeping things under the rug and allowing potentially violent criminals the opportunity to continue to rape and potentially escalate to more. I knew John was dark. I knew that he he had really piercing eyes. Piercing eyes. His eyes were like black, kind of like Ted Bundy, those kind of eyes. Um, but was I scared of him? Hell no. Not a bit. But I should have been. And what Barbara just said rings true. 
She wasn't scared of John. Hell no. But she should have been. Because unfortunately, Margaret's life would not be the last one that John Getrew would take. Much like how thoughts of John Getrew became less and less prevalent in Barbara's mind, he slipped back into the U.S. quietly. With the murder he committed having happened overseas, he could really just fly under the radar. And his parents never shared what their son had done. And the military, for the most part, swept this whole thing right under the rug. And he lived in relative obscurity. And that was until 2017. It wasn't until the massive search for the Golden State Killer that John Getrew became a blip on law enforcement radar. Margaret Williams had a little brother named Evan, and he's seven and a half years old when his sister was killed by John Getrew. Eventually, Margaret's family moved back to the States to be stationed at a U.S. base. And Evan grew up and became a pastor, working in the church just like his father had. And of course, even though Evan was young when his sister was murdered, that's not something that leaves your mind. So all of these years later, when the FBI announced this revived effort to catch and capture the Golden State Killer, Evan heard about that. And he started doing some research. And he found that John Getru was living in Northern California while the Golden State Killer was active in Northern California. So when he called the police, Evan said, I don't know that this guy is the Golden State Killer. And he may not be, and you may think I'm crazy. But there is a man who killed my sister when he was 18, and he lives in that area. So he was thinking that the Golden State Killer might be John Getrew. Some of the dates were so similar to when John had been in California, because he had done some research. You've got to trace this man's DNA. And they said, well, we can't just go get his DNA. We don't have any. And how do we match it? And, and then they did that genealogy and found a cousin back in Ohio, and you know, I guess you know how they match the, the different things on the DNA, and found a match, then they started looking at all the Getrus. You know, can we find any of the Getrus? And then they found, oh, there is one. He is in Palo Alto. Hmm. And so then they made the connections. We have to thank the detective department, too. You know, some police departments, they go, we don't care. That was 50 years ago. So when the police started researching it, and found out that he was, you know, the security guard at Stanford and all of this other stuff, then they, they found out, no, it's not the Golden State Killer, but this guy might have killed some people. So as we know, John Getrew is not the Golden State Killer. But John Getrew and Joseph D'Angelo are very much connected. They are part of the same club, both in their 70s, both living in Northern California, both serial offenders who long thought they had gotten away with their crimes, and both were caught as a result of genetic genealogy. So John Getrew's DNA was found on the murdered remains of 21-year-old Leslie Murley Perlov, and she was killed in 1973. His DNA was also found on the body of 21-year-old Janet Ann Taylor, who was killed in 1974. Both women were murdered near Stanford University. And these are just cases that we know about so far. Law enforcement officers are working to piece together a timeline of his life. But here's what we do know. John ultimately became a father, he became a husband three times over, and he held down multiple jobs without really drawing any attention while he was living this double life as a serial killer. It's gone. I, I started thinking, okay, I did all the things that when you're older you think, okay, 
I graduated high school. I had boyfriends. I bought my first car. I taught in my first school. I got married. I had my babies. Uh, they grew up. All of that. Margaret got nothing. Did he have his eye on her before? I don't know. I don't know. Did he hurt someone back in the States before he came to Germany? I don't know. And that man has lived like a slime 15 minutes away from Stanford his whole life. I think, I think that we walk among murderers, rapists every day, and we don't know it. I'm convinced. We don't know it. And then we come full circle to this notion of military brats and the transient nomadic characteristics of this lifestyle. When John went to jail and his family went back to the States, so he got two years for killing a girl, and his parents acted like it never happened. They never told anybody. Nothing. He got away with murder. You know, the military is very good about keeping that stuff secret. They don't, I mean, if you went back right now to the military and tried to find more about it, they're very closed-mouthed. John stayed under the radar for decades. He was able to live in obscurity. He was hard to find. He was hard to track down. And this helped him get away with murder. Our parents treated us like soldiers. You will do what I say. If I say jump, you say how high. When you're in the military, you don't have a home. We didn't come back to a home. Well, and again, everybody, once your tour was up, you came back to the States. It's hard to find. It's hard to find army brats. The number of cities, the number of victims that could be connected to John Getru is nearly impossible to predict at this time. But hypothetically speaking, these numbers could be staggering. As we've seen with people like Joseph D'Angelo, what he was able to do in just a short number of years was devastating. And this guy could be Joseph D'Angelo's like counterpart in some ways. Okay, so a huge, huge thank you to Barbara for being our first degree this episode. And she'll also be with us next week as we take you through the sordid and elusive life of John Getru, his known crimes, and the stunning parallels between he and Joseph D'Angelo, the serial killer that ironically prompted his capture. And until then, if you have a story you'd like to tell us, please email us at hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree podcast, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack Fanick. Please join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time and uh, stick around because we're going to kill some time and talk about the Golden State Killer and how he pled guilty. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not not that close. And six feet away. Still wear your mask. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Social distancing, bitches. Happy Chicken Wing Day, everyone. Live your best life. Order some wingies. Oh, chicken wings. (laughs) Bye. Sources for today's episode includes Palo Alto Online, The New York Advocate, The New York Times, The LA Times, USA Today, Court Documents, and as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source.
All right. Well, welcome to today's episode of Killing Time. So this is a very monumental week in the true crime world. Disclaimer, we are recording this on Monday, so we're two days kind of behind of where this is airing. But um, Golden State Killer pled guilty to avoid the death penalty. And obviously, my two co-hosts were very involved in this entire story. And, um, you know, I feel like they might have a few opinions of what's going on. Yeah, it was uh, crazy. I watched for as much as I could today because it was televised. They did it in a ballroom and he was wearing that plastic shield thingy. And it was, he's so gross. He's so gross. And they just, I mean, and he didn't have to disclose anything. He just kept saying, I admit, I admit when they were reading the charges and it was super descriptive and it was so, he's so gross. Hate that guy. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they were, uh, I mean, never, you've never seen a more punchable face. And he just sat there, like Lex was saying, you know, he would say, I admit, he'd say guilty. He'd say, yes, your honor. And he'd say, no, I think those are all the words that he said. Wow. But, um, you know, a couple of new things that did come out is, uh, things that I didn't know is that, um, when he was first arrested, he, he was trying to set up an alter ego defense. Uh, so when he was first arrested in the room, he was saying, I did it, I did it. But then I finally got rid of Jerry and Jerry got out of my body and then I was able to uh, live a, ha- a happy life. Sort wait, of setting up wait, that- wait, 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 wait. So his alter ego is named Jerry? Jerry, yeah. You know, yeah. Is alter- also the alter ego of my lovely boyfriend, Jared. Coincidence, <laughs> I think not. <laughs> oh, no. This is bad. This is, wait, so he- I'll take he- you, Jer. This <laughs> so he no, the, the polar opposite of the Golden State Killer is yeah, there. yeah. the funny Jared Jared's alter ego Jerry is literally was created because he's so goofy and kind and <laughs> and silly and wonderful so it's pretty much the opposite alter ego so he created this this defense kind of thing before he was arrested or right no, after no, no. What, right after he was arrested when he was in the room they they described what he said. And um, he said that he mentioned this Jerry thing, kind of like the way that, you know, you see a lot of, uh, you know, Son of Sam or Ted Bundy with a dark passenger. You see a lot of that when they're saying that they were kind of possessed or they were split personalities. It was all bullshit. And he, uh, you know, they, they were, you know, somebody also brought up, is he faking? You know, and they would—they didn't want to come out right out and say he's faking, but they brought he up is. also. Of course, he is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and but they couldn't say it. I don't know. Maybe maybe because of HIPAA laws or something. Who knows? But they can say that no, he's definitely faking it. But um, they did say that when he was first ar- arrested for the um, the shoplifting, the dog repellent, and the hammer, he faked a heart attack. Oh God! Which we had—I'd never read before either. So that was—he was—he's con- constantly a kind of guy that like would fake stuff in order to get out, and that's what he's doing right now. So him sitting there, you know, they—they they talked about how you know anybody that watched it, you saw how feeble he looked. He was like that from day one when he was arrested, and but two days before he was arrested, he was flying down the highway. Or the freeway is in California. Like 70, 80 miles an hour avoiding cop cars and helicopters and yeah. shit. And under his was daughter's he, car, like wrenching and fixing it. Yeah. Was he doing the same kind of thing like, you know, when Harvey Weinstein got arrested and then he appeared in court and he was like on a walker, like yes. super frail? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like and he trying to get a bunch of weight really fast. fast. He right. lost a bunch of weight really fast, which made him look a lot older. And he's got this really weak voice. I mean, if you look, 
at what uh, victims were saying back in the 70s about his voice. Yeah. It's about how high pitched it is. And even now, I mean, when he was saying, I admit, he's like, I admit, like he sounds like it's a high pitched, <laughs> yeah, awesome. like yeah. really old ass high pitched man. And I'm like, this is exactly yeah. what, how they describe it. He's disgusting. But I actually I have a really, I have an interesting story about him from when he was first arrested. So as we know, I mean, nobody knew that he was a serial killer, in, including his children. And I guess once he was arrested, of course, the, the children are shocked. And you have to know, like, Joe D'Angelo, he's been wearing a mask his entire life. I mean, he was the most prolific double-life serial killer I've ever heard about. And his family didn't know. And he had only daughters and, and granddaughters, which ironically. And I guess, like, I think, so when the daughters found out, they were brought in to see him. And they could go into the interrogation room and talk to him like, oh, my God, dad, say this isn't true. Tell me this is a lie. Like, this can't be. Right. And he was completely stone faced. And he was just like, get the fuck out to his kids. Because it's like the jig was up. He didn't have to pretend to be dad anymore. He didn't have to oh. pretend to be like. And he was like, just get the fuck out. Like, it was just uh, it sounded to me as the story was relayed like a relief. And like, if I don't have to pretend anymore, if my. My, I've been exposed. Um, my self-preservation tactic, it's all gone. Then I don't even have to pretend to be this fucking dad guy anymore because that's not who I am. Because if you kill that many people and rape that many people and burgle that many houses, like that's really who he is. Right, right, right. Like he spent a lot less time pretending to be that than he was pretending to be dad. Dad was like the, the labored facade. You know what I mean? Like organically, authentically, he's, he's that guy. And it, he's just... So fascinating and terrifying. I, I fucking hate him. <laughs> I have a question about that. Was he, because I actually don't know as much as I probably should about GSA, considering I'm so close with both of you. Um, was he, when he was being an actual father to his kids and grandfather, was he a good one? Like, was it like a BTK thing where his daughter, like, always thought that it he was a good father? So he, what I've okay. heard, and I don't know what Billy's heard, is just like he was a dad who like put food on the table and like put a roof over the head, but like wasn't overly engaged. It was like a, a um, little bit detached. Yeah. It just sounds like it was sort of like a really old school family model where it less was expected emotionally of him maybe. Um, and he was like a provider and that's sort of more it. But I mean, he was living with one of his daughters and his granddaughter in his house when he was arrested. So not yeah. the mom, like he was cohabitating with a daughter and his grandbaby girl. Right. Um, so he was certainly engaged enough and probably helping this daughter out. Yeah. And, you know, from what I've heard, exactly what Lex said, just sort of that kind of old old school dynamic, he puts food on the table, but he was like a really, he was a cranky, curmudgeon-y guy, at least towards the end there, right. um, yelling at people, yelling at neighbors, that kind of thing. So he wasn't, it wasn't like he was a super nice guy on the outside. Oh, God, what a crazy thing. So is there anything else that you had learned through watching the 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 thing today either of you only some more only more details of the brutality of the crimes so i knew about all of these crimes really well so by the way the show i did unmasking a killer is rerunning and obviously billy's show 
on HBO premiered last night. Um, so there's lots to watch right now, but there was By a the lot way, that was sorry. The timing of that is also fucking crazy. I know it's really it's ironic. Insane. Insane. It's so ironic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The time the timing in all of this stuff has been surreal. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I just learned some more details because when they were reading the counts against him and then he had to say either guilty or I admit, the guy who was reading it was really emotional. And I was and I think he was an attorney. I missed his name. But when he was reading just the descriptions of the murders, like Manuela Whithoon's murder and Janelle Cruz's murder, like I didn't know Janelle Cruz had teeth knocked out. I didn't know, you know what I mean? Like there were certain little like details about how awful and how brutal these crimes were that I wasn't aware of, but nothing shockingly new other than just, they're always just even worse than you imagine because you can't even imagine like the fear and the brutality that you're experiencing as you're being killed yeah particularly i think that was the guy from oc and and particularly with janelle talking about the the teeth and and how much blood she had swallowed as well um just awful you know terrible terrible he he was definitely going for the you know he he was trying to make a statement you know um when when he went up there because because there were different because he was so prolific across so many different jurisdictions he was getting choked up I was like yeah. moved by him. I loved him. And I don't know who he is. He a, a DA or something, but I just, I thought he was great. Yeah. He's an ADA down there, I believe. And, mm-hmm. but you had all different, you had like a woman who was very soft-spoken from one County and it was all different counties because he was so prolific. So you had people, just a, a cast coming up there and, you know, it started at nine 30 and it didn't end until well, I think it was five wow. with a lunch break and a couple of little breaks in between. But, uh, you know, we don't know the victim statements, I believe, are going to happen around sentencing. Sentencing is going to be on August 17th or, or around there, um, barring any kind of uh, uh, delays or anything like that. Yeah. Didn't people clap because they said his penis was small? Yes, that was a. So um, oh they, they were talking they were talking about uh, Jane Doe 20 um, and. They, the woman who was reading uh, Jane Doe 20's account, Jane Doe number 20, I believe, is the one who had said, uh, when asked for a physical description, he said he had a tiny penis and that matched up with a lot of, uh, with almost every other woman that he had assaulted. And then there was a pause and then there was enthusiastic applause. Oh my God. So did they show his face during any of this? I, you could see, I, I have a video of it up on my, uh, on my Twitter. Uh, it's just, his face was the same. He's not going to change his, change anything. Yeah. Fucker. I mean, listen, I am against body shaming of any kind, unless it is towards a motherfucker like this guy. Yeah. So please call out the size of his tiny, tiny little dick all day, every day. Mm-hmm. I hate that guy. I fucking hate that guy. Like, what a what an insane thing to do with your time and your life. What a crazy fucking thing to do. I can't. I mean, it's can't. it's it's fucking unbelievable. But I'm so. I mean, it, it has been like such a wild ride because when we. I mean, I've been friends with Alexis for 15 years, but since we started the podcast, like you both were in your respective lanes of trying to find the fucking guy. And it happened while I think the first year that we were doing the podcast. And I remember the text from Billy at like 11 p.m. the day before um, they announced it. So it's been like such an, an interesting and a crazy experience kind of watching watching it and then watching you guys too. 
through the whole thing. What's what's crazy about it is that like I don't know that we would have a podcast without GSK, which is like Billy yeah. and I met because of this fucker. Um, yeah. And while we Jack, we were gonna do a podcast, like we wanted a dude, and like there's no other guy who could. It wouldn't be the what first other crime guys are there. <laughs> and no, it it is just could like put a, up with our bullshit, Alexis. <laughs> I mean. I am, have so much bullshit. I don't understand <laughs> how anyone talks to me. But um, yeah, I. it's a weird – he's a very polarizing figure, at least in my life, because yeah. so much good has come as a result of like this obsession over him. But then you look at, of course, like Michelle McNamara, and it's like, do you call that good or bad, that obsession? You know, she – Right. You know, she's not here, but – look at what happened. So I don't know, you know, like he's very polarizing. I'm sure to a lot of people. Well, it's interesting. It's just the ripple effects of somebody and cosmic shuffling of the deck. It is. And it it, it is interesting because that, that person's uh, presence in the world and all of the horrible things that they have done, the ripple effect affects so many people's lives in so many different ways and people that are so far removed from him. Um, So it is interesting to kind of think about, that well, even, totally and even in the case we discussed today i mean the brother of margaret called thinking that this guy was gsk and that's how right. the lid got blown off of this second potential very prolific serial killer which you know that'll be, remain to be seen but it is it is you know i'm sure he's a central figure in a lot of people's stories because the reach is so vast when you've hurt that many people yeah right. and and also there's the the I think it's over a hundred right now of cases that have been solved, murder cases that have been solved with genetic genealogy, and he was able to open the floodgates for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Damn. Well, we'll have lots more to talk about um, next next week too. I mean, this is a two parter, right? So there are a million parallels between, and I do think it's fascinating to look at GSK versus. John, the guy we discussed today, because there are so many like stunning parallels that we are going to get into. Because maybe, maybe this serial killer archetype is more pronounced than we originally thought. Because GSK does seem so unique, but maybe he's not, and that's mm-hmm. terrifying. <laughs> and I'm I, I'm <laughs> also sure that that statement alone probably like is another jab to him too. So fuck you, dude. Yeah, dude, you're not that fucking interesting. No. <laughs> nope. fuck no all right well jody angelo we call it time yeah we calling it um 16 on the dot 